Good morning. Yeah, it's good to hear your voices and see some of your faces and you too at home. Uh, yeah, grateful to be in the book of Luke again. We've been in Luke since last September, just following it along one by one, verse after verse. So if you're joining us maybe for the first time uh, and you think, gosh, this is a tough sermon. Well, this was just the next one, uh, next passage. So let me, uh, let me pray for us in advance of the preaching of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, David Platt, author, pastor David Platt, writes that uh, much of American Christianity is attempting to redefine Christianity. He says they're attempting to redefine Jesus into a, quote, nice middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism. A Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all of our affection. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our own comforts because, after all, he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Now compare that Jesus with this Jesus. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanying him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to, to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet who to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 and if not while the other is yet a great way off he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If it is of no use, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. One can never fault Jesus for not being clear. One can never fault Jesus for being dishonest about what it means to follow him. 
Jesus is not like some of those evangelists that sort of use that kind of bait and switch tactic. He says to us today and every day that the cost of following me is all. And that cost, you should know, is high. Jesus is asking us to put everything on the table. Everything. And so by that, friends, we should know that following Jesus is no game. It's no hobby. Jesus and his kingdom are not some cultural affiliation like a political party, like an alma mater, or like a favorite sports team. The call to discipleship is total and unequivocal. That's the point of Jesus in this passage. It's critical. Jesus is saying he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He has made us for himself. And he gave us all of himself so that we might have all of him. Therefore, Jesus is calling us to do for him what he has done for us. To love him above all else. And so kids, if you're taking that note on there, what's the whole passage about? That's it. To love Jesus more than anything else. To put everything on the table. To be willing to sacrifice it all. To know him. To enjoy him. That's what we're going to see today. In verse 25, as we continue on here, we see that Jesus, we were reminded, has set his face toward Jerusalem. He's journeying towards Jerusalem. He knows what is there in Jerusalem. He knows what's waiting for him. He knows that a cross, his own cross, is waiting for him. He knows that he will be murdered upon his arrival. And so he's slowly making his way towards Jerusalem. And along the way, on that journey, he has scourged the hypocritical religious leaders. They have been invited to the kingdom. These leaders we saw last week have been invited to the kingdom. But they are full of excuses. They love other things more. They presume upon the love of God. They go through the motions of religion thinking they deserve a place at the table of Christ. And yet Jesus says, idol-worshiping, hypocritical, half-hearted, excuse-ridden discipleship that is unwilling to die to self and follow Jesus and love others results in no place at his banquet table in heaven. And as we look here in verse 25, we see the crowds continue to press in on Jesus. He's a still continues to be very popular with the crowds. And Jesus turns all of that language we just talked about with the religious leaders that we've been looking at these last few chapters. He turns that language now on the crowds. I don't know if you know, but there is a million dollar industry in evangelicalism called the church growth movement. They're trying to do everything it takes to sort of make churches get big. Jesus seems to be doing the very opposite. Seeking to shrink in a way. Remember that he said in Luke 12, 51, Jesus said, I came not to cause peace, but to cause division. And by that, he meant that he came to divide up who stands where. You remember what Simeon said of baby Jesus. He's the great revealer. He's going to show who stands where in relation to who God is and where, they're st- and where they stand in relation to him. And Jesus has told us that most, we saw this the last couple of weeks, he has told us that most people stand outside the door of his kingdom. And that includes religious people. 
He's also made it clear that the way into the kingdom is narrow and it's hard. We know Christ, we know that Christ teaches us that the price into the kingdom is free. Jesus has paid it all. That's the beautiful hope of the gospel. Christ has paid it all, but the way is hard. The price is free, but the way is hard. And Jesus, making all of these things clear for us, these clear distinctions, these sharp words, these guys, don't forget, these are a good gift from God. Jesus doesn't leave us guessing as to the cost of discipleship. Jesus tells us exactly what he demands from the world. And he marks out for us what it means to stand in the light and stand in the darkness. And he gives the ramifications of both, depending on where you stand. He's been very clear about this. And so as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he, Jesus, rightfully and understandably calls for complete devotion. Which this, guys, this shouldn't be surprising to us, right? Jesus has said all along, God's word has said to love God, the first and greatest commandment, to love God with all. And of course, we would expect the same thing, wouldn't we? Just think about if you were to, to propose to a potential spouse. Imagine proposing to that spouse, and that spouse says, yes, I'll marry, be, marry you, but you need to know, I also want to spend time and love these other people as well. More than you or as much as you. Or imagine proposing to a spouse and the spouse says, my career is really important to me and so therefore I'm probably going to spend a lot of time away from you. And it might, even, it might be as important as you or maybe at times more important than you. Would you want to marry that person? Wouldn't you desire them to have full devotion in order to be devoted to you? And we remember that marriage was meant to illustrate our relationship to Christ. And therefore, for Christ to say we must die to self and even relationships most dear to us and live to him, that's the call of being married to Jesus. Just as we would expect in a spouse, so Jesus expects in us towards him. Otherwise, he says it three times. I don't know if you all caught that. He says it three times. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. This is the point. Love Jesus with all, complete devotion. That word hate there, I know that's jarring to you, and it should be. That's Jesus' whole point. He's using hyperbolic language. If I were to say to you, I really don't like this, you would wonder how much I really don't like it. But if I were to say to you, I hate this, you would know that I was trying to communicate my deep dislike of something. We're using hyperbolic language. And so Jesus, friends, is not opposed to the fifth commandment to honor father and mother. He has told us, hasn't Jesus told us to love even our enemies? He's told us to love our neighbors sacrificially, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so therefore, Jesus is using this language of hate hyperbolically to try to get the attention of the crowds who don't seem to listen well. We can imagine from another parable that he uses, that the, the crowds are sleepy, they're drowsy, and he's trying to speak words to wake them up. He uses that sharp language to wake him up. And you can see that's what he's doing because you look down in that final sentence in verse 33, you'll notice that it says there, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He wants them to hear, but he knows, Jesus knows, he's already said, most of these people are not going to hear. Most of them are not going to listen. They won't understand the call to 
total discipleship. And yet they'll still want to add Jesus. These crowds will still might want to add Jesus to their pantheon of other hobbies, their other service providers, their other idols created in their own image. They'll still want to say they follow Jesus, but they really won't, even though he's trying to be as sharp as he can. Matthew, in his gospel, uses the language of love. He says there that Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And so Jesus is saying that our devotion, friends, has to be so total that it may look like hate to the world when we follow him. I had a member of our church share with me just this past week that when he and his wife decided to take their two small children from the States and go to a foreign country in order to make disciples, this member of ours, his unbelieving parents understood this passage. His unbelieving parents believed it to be, maybe they didn't use the word hateful, but they used the words, they, they thought it to be unloving to take their grandchildren out of the States to a dangerous place for the purpose of following this Jesus. I think about this when Andy and I and Joey and Paige brought our small children up here to plant a church. Our parents, thankfully our believers, and on the whole, they were glad for us to come here. But for us, we had to ask ourselves this question. Are we willing to leave family that we love, friends that we love, are we willing to leave a culture that we're comfortable in? to go and follow Jesus so that other people might know him? Are we willing to do that? And friends, I can tell you, those first four or five years here in this city, I can't tell you how many times that I quoted Matthew 19 to myself when Jesus says that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Those words were comforting to me because it was hard. I want to be clear about something. That doesn't mean that that family had to move overseas. They could have stayed in the States and not been sinful. Just like we could have stayed in Georgia and it not been sinful. Wouldn't have been wrong. There's plenty of days when Andy and I look at each other and think, well, it would have been nice to have drop the, drop the kids off to the grandparents so that we can go out and have some dates, right? Not wrong, these things. We've got to be gripped by the love of Christ. By his call here, we had to answer this question. Are we willing to leave family, leave friends, and go where it's not easy for the sake of the mission of Christ? You may not have to do that. But I think at least asking ourselves the question is instructive. Because if our answer was no for us, if our answer was no, we're not willing to do that. We're only willing to follow Jesus if we have 2,000 square feet, grandparents close enough to drop the kids off at so we can go on long vacations, be in a culture that's sort of comfortable and already has a category for church. If that's what we mean when we say, yes, we'll follow Jesus, then we need to know that at that point, our commitment to Christ is in a dangerous place. And again, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying everyone has to leave father, mother, brother, sister, or Lance. I'm not saying that. I'm simply sharing with you how this truth came full frontal to us. The reality is all of you have other roadblocks that you have had to face, that you are facing or will face, where you will have to count the cost. I'm forever haunted in a good way by our sister Monica Maldonado, 
who, when faced with her beloved husband's health concerns, told us in no uncertain terms that she did not want to lose her husband, but she said, he does not belong to me. He belongs to the Lord. That's a sister that counts the cost and loves Jesus more than all. And these stories, right, are all over our church. We could tell, all of us could tell some stories in some way, shape, or form. People giving up all kinds of things, picking up their cross, dying to self, living to him, following him, because they knew that not only it was true that Jesus was the Lord, but also they knew that uh, he called them to follow him. And thirdly, most importantly, they knew that he was worth it. Not only that it was true, not only that the call was there, but he was worth it. Think of also uh, the author, Rosaria Butterfield, who tells the story of quite literally getting out of bed one Sunday morning to leave her lesbian partner and come to church, leaving that lifestyle behind her. Butterfield says that she went to church and she said she looked around at the people that Sunday knowing she literally got out of the bed, went to church, and she looked at the people in that church and wondered, what did you give up to follow Jesus? Whoever does not bear his own cross, Jesus says, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. And friends, let's not forget that when Jesus says this, he's making a call at the front end of their discipleship. He's making this call at the front end of their discipleship. This, in other words, is an evangelistic appeal of Christ to the masses. And also, don't forget that he makes this appeal to a culture that he knows in a matter of days was going to crucify him. In other words, he knew that this was an antagonistic culture. He knew this was a combative culture in terms of heeding this call to love him more than everything else, to leave father, mother, brother, sister, to follow him. Not leave, but to hate, but to love him more. In other words, the culture that he's speaking to was more like Pakistan and less like Pennsylvania. He also would have known that there would be many loved ones that would heed that call it would know that they would have to do that, that they would have to leave, they would have to walk away. And let's not forget that it was the same culture, the same culture that it would eventually persecute and intimidate other Christians, pushing them out of the synagogue so as to gather on their own. This is the same culture that would eventually, according to tradition, kill all of the disciples, save one who would be imprisoned for life. This is the same culture wherein Jesus told them, he tells us, in this world, you will have great tribulation. Again, Jesus is clear about what it means to follow him. He knows that he's calling them to, to he knows, Jesus knows what he's calling them to, and so that's why he's making it so clear at the front end of their discipleship. He knows that few will be willing to see his infinite worth, die to self, and marry him. Few will be willing to do that. And so as we kind of move from that culture to our own, we are mindful, aren't we, that it's no secret that in these days, friends, it's no secret that following Christ is getting harder and harder in this nation. Now, I want to be clear about something. It's always been hard to follow Jesus in this nation. Forgiving those that forgive you, that's always been hard. Right? Loving father, mother, that's always been hard. 
But there was a time in our nation's history where if you were a member, let's say, of a church in the deep south in Mississippi, wherein you know most of the members of that church were participating in active racism, you would have had to have stood up and called them to repent. In other words, my point is simply this. There was no golden age of Christianity in America. Do you need me? No. There was no golden age of Christianity in America. But the cultural benefit, guys, don't lose sight of this. The cultural benefit of being seen as a Bible-believing, Christ-exalting, mission-minded follower of Christ, that cultural benefit, that cultural cachet, that cultural benefit is fading. It's fading. And so it's getting easier as things get harder to see where the consistently faithful churches and faithful Christians can be found. It's getting easier to see where the faithfulness can be found. The kind of squishy evangelical Christianity that's not willing to do what Jesus says here, it's getting easier to identify those churches and those Christians. And it's getting easier, likewise, to identify those that really follow just a tradition, not really a savior. There's this kind of purging, this dividing as Jesus is doing, this revealing that's long overdue. The heat from the fire of these purgings is indeed hot and it will get harder, but it is a good gift from God to reveal our hearts. Again, the cost of leaving all to follow Jesus has always been on the table, but that is becoming more and more perceptible to us here. In love, friends, Jesus demands all of you. All of us. So the question on the table for us this morning is this. Will you be willing to renounce all, to say farewell to all, to everything, if it means you're found in Christ? And we know, friends, again, Jesus was willing to do this. He's not asking you to do something he hasn't done himself. He left the worship of the angels to come to make disciples. So he shows that he was willing to love above all. And so for those of us that maybe grew up in and around Christianity, I hope you see what Jesus is calling us to here. Jesus is not asking you to just now stop listening to this radio station and start listening to, you know, the Christian radio station. It's not what he's calling you to. Jesus is not calling you to throw a few bucks in the offering plate when it goes by. Remember those days when we would pass an offering plate? He's not asking you just to do that. He's not asking you, you know, go to church, you know, when you can. And make sure and sort of have all the right answers on the gospel test. That's not what Jesus is calling you to. He's not asking you, in other words, just to check some boxes. He's calling you. He's demanding of us all to love him more than everything else, more than your desired life outcome, more than your career, more than your spouse, more than your family, more than your children, more than your money, more than your public perception, more than your party affiliation or tribe, more than your comfort and security. He's saying that you cannot be his disciple unless you are willing to follow him by bearing a cross, by sacrificing yourself to him. He calls us to die to self and live to him, which is why Paul wrote, 
right? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I that lives, but it is Christ that lives in me. The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you love Jesus enough to leave it all to follow him? What comes next in the passage is another good gift from Jesus that helps us to answer that question. What he comes next in this counting of the cost, when we move down in the passage, what we see there is Jesus is calling us to not flippantly or blindly or emotively just respond to this. He invites us to consider the cost, to count the cost. Jesus, friends, is not like some churches have taught in the past. Jesus is not looking for some blind faith. He wants you to think about this. Again, he's, as I've said, he's honest, he's clear, he invites, he invites the crowds to count the cost. No easy believism here, friends. And he gives two images. He says, if I can use 21st century language, he says, in essence, imagine you were building a skyscraper. Wouldn't you need to know at the front end how much land you'll need, how much concrete you'll need, how much labor you'll need? Don't you need to know those things at the front end? Because if you don't think about those things at the front end, well, then what will wind up happening is, is you'll build a half-built or a quarter-built skyscraper and you'll look like a fool. Pastor John Stott uses the imagery of this parable to say the following. He said, The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of half-built towers. The ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result, he says, is the great scandal of Christians today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved. Enough to be respectable, he says, but not enough to be uncomfortable. The religion, he says, is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its shape to suit their convenience, unquote. Count the cost, friends. Count the cost. The second image that Jesus provides has a similar point of counting the cost, but you'll notice the the image is slightly different. Instead of the decision being upon oneself, Jesus uses the image of an approaching army that is twice the size of your own army. He uses that to sort of show that you a decision is forced upon you. He still calls us to count the cost, but here Jesus brings to bear the stubborn reality of his approaching kingdom. In other words, it's big. The kingdom of God is big, it's powerful, and guess what? It will win. Nothing can stop it. You'd be wise, he's saying in this parable, you'd be wise to make your peace with God now while you can. You'd be wise to count the cost and and take short-term pain and long-term peace if it meant being in Christ and in his kingdom. Therefore, we then move, anyone who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Again, all Jesus is saying here is you have to love me more than everything else. 
You have to put everything on the table. You have to be willing to commit to me totally in order to marry me. And Jesus recognizes that if you don't, if you're only willing to put pieces of your life, parts of your life, parts of your theology, parts of your job, parts of your affection, if you're only willing to put parts up there, Jesus is saying what winds up happening is you wind up becoming useless. That's that last parable there in verse 34. Talking about salt. Jesus says salt is good. Right? It gives flavor. It gives preservative. But, he says, if salt loses its beneficial qualities, if it loses its tastiness, it only winds up being thrown on a trash pile. Friends, Jesus recognizes that half-built towers, half-hearted soldiers cause more damage than anything else, any help that they may have provided. This is what that image that Stott was talking about uh, just a moment ago. Jesus is saying, in essence, listen, you've got to be salty or you're not. Either be salty or not. Either give me everything or don't. Either be committed to this marriage or don't get married. Otherwise, the church becomes a kind of half-built tower or badly beaten army. And people mock it. Guys, just think about how many half-hearted churches. Think about how many half-hearted, undevoted people to Jesus. How many churches have caused the wreckage of the world? All of us even individually know stories of people that have walked away from Jesus. Some of you know these stories personally. And you have experienced the damaging effect of half-built towers in your life. You've experienced what it's like because of their falling away, walking away. You've experienced what it's like for someone to kind of leave a marriage. Now listen, I want to be clear about something. We know that when Jesus saves, he saves to the uttermost. Jesus says in John 6 that he loses none. Philippians says that what he begins, he finishes. None can be taken out of the hands of Christ. But we also remember that Jesus taught us the parable of those four soils. Y'all remember that? We have the one, the one that rejects Christ outright, and then the one that perseveres to the end. But remember those two middle soils in the middle. You remember those? The one on the rock, the one on the path. Therein we see Jesus taught us. Those people sort of receive Jesus joyfully, it says only to reveal that in time, that when pleasure came, worldly pleasure or pain came, they walked away from Jesus. Revealing, Jesus taught us, revealing that their soil, their foundation, their rock was not Christ, but something else. And so here Jesus is saying, listen, count the cost of the journey ahead. Don't start building a life with me. Don't, be, don't say you're going to marry me and then walk out. Because that will only make things worse. Be willing, Jesus is saying, be willing to put it all on the table, to take up sacrifice, to follow me, to weigh it out, to count the cost. Don't start out in marrying me and then just walk out. That makes everything worse. Now some of you are asking, how can I know that I've done this? How can I be sure that I've done this? Well, the first thing I would say to you would be this. Do you believe the true gospel? Do you trust and treasure the true gospel? Not some man-centered, fluid gospel that takes whatever shape you want it to. 
Do you believe that Jesus Christ was the Lord of Lords, who's fully God and fully man, and lived a sinless life, that offered his life as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sin? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he took your penalty and gave you his righteousness? And that he was buried in the ground and bodily rose three days later, promising you new and eternal life? Are you, do you believe that Jesus Christ was those things, is those things? Do you believe that you need to turn away from self, repent and believe on him, trust him, treasure him? Are you repenting and believing in Christ? Not just did you do it when you were 10. Today, repenting and believing on Christ. We start there with the truth. And then from that, that's salvation. That's all you need. Hear me, don't tune out. Because all that I'm about to do, you might think that this stuff requires you to be saved. I'm not saying that. Full stop. Repenting and believing on Christ alone to be saved saves you. Start with the truth. And then from that, we can evaluate as Jesus taught us the fruit of that decision. Namely, do you pursue him? Do you go to him? Do you pray to him? Do you seek to know him of whom you love? Do you seek to love him? And do you seek to desire to love him more? I want to be clear. All of us don't love him as Jesus deserves. None of us loves Jesus as he deserves, just like I don't love my wife like she deserves. That doesn't mean I'm not still married to her. I'm asking a slightly different question. I'm saying do you desire to? If I say I do not desire to love my wife more than I do now, something's wrong in the marriage. Do you desire to love Jesus more than you do now? Do you want to? And then moving from God to neighbor, love God, love neighbor. Do you serve then your neighbor? Out of the love of Christ, do you then serve your neighbor? Or is your Christianity consumer-based? Me-centered. The church and other Christians sort of exist to provide you a service. You go on receiving but never giving. In other words, do you help other people know and enjoy and follow Jesus? And I recognize that when I ask that question, I've, I've pastored long enough to know, here's the question that comes up when I ask that. Well, Nathan, I need some more information and then I'll do that. No, friend. No. Think about those disciples. They had the gospel. That was enough. If you know that gospel, believe that gospel that I shared, you have enough. The Spirit of God is in you. Do you help other people follow Jesus? Do you try to read the Bible with other people? Do you talk about the Bible with other people? Not just the Bible, the Word. Like, do you enjoy doing that? Do you ask other people how they're doing? Do you call them up, send them text messages, take a walk with them and ask them how they are and then pray for them? Do you endeavor and have you been serving the poor? It was so encouraging to watch the saints at IBSG yesterday. They were out there serving the poor. They needed help. And if you were to ask every single one of them, you can ask Alejandra, you can ask Rebecca, you can ask Juan Vega, you can ask all of them today, why did you do that? And they will tell you, because I love Jesus. He served me when I was poor. Do you serve the poor? Do you serve the weak? Do you serve the disenfranchised? Do you serve those people that are not like you? Not just the ones that are. Be it your co-workers, your family members, the children of our church, or friends. How about this one? Here's a big one. Do you forgive others the way that God has forgiven you? That's incredibly hard to do. That's costly. 
That is to say, this is forgiveness. Do you choose to absorb their penalty against you and then dismiss it as Jesus did? I'm not saying that their sin was okay. No, no. But do you choose to no longer hold other people's sin against you? Are you, are you willing to no longer hold that over them because of the way that Jesus loved you? Since that's what he did for you. Because to do that consistently, right, that demands the power of the gospel. We cannot do it without Jesus. We can't do that. It's too hard. Do you give a portion of your time and your treasures to the work of the gospel? That's costly. Do you love people enough to say hard things when you see them living dangerously, making bad decisions? And of course, we have that wonderful list from Paul. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Notice, by the way, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit. We ought to be manifesting these things, all of them. To be clear, we don't exude these things all of the time. But do these things increasingly mark you? And not just your actions, but your desires. In other words, do you desire to be more loving, more patient, more kind, more fruitful, more gentle, more faithful, more self-controlled because of the love of Christ in you? Well, if so, friend, if so, this would indicate that you have counted the cost and that you are willing to put it all on the table to follow Jesus. Again, these things don't save you, but they give evidence of the fact that you have chosen to follow him. But if not, if that, those things don't mark you, if you've not repented and believed, if after you think about those things, you're consciously and decidedly opposed to this Jesus and his call, friend, let's talk. You and I, let's talk. Or if you know someone else that you can sit down and talk to, please go talk to them. Another gospel-believing friend, talk to them, weigh it out. Because listen, as you can see here, Jesus makes it crystal clear. This call is clear and this call is urgent. You need to count the cost, but it's still urgent. As Jesus says, the army is approaching. Don't leave it for another day. Count the cost. Lay it all in order to be married to Christ. And that's where I want to leave us before I pray. Before I close, I need to say this. It is true that Jesus is the Lord, just as gravity governs the earth. You can deny it, but you've got to pay the consequences if you don't. It's true that Jesus is the Lord. It's also true that Jesus demands all. It's also true that he calls us to repent, to die to self and follow him. But listen, don't lose sight of this. It's true that he is the truth, but it's also true that he is the life. That he is love. That Jesus is that flavor behind your favorite food. That he is the beauty of the sunset. That he is the affection of the greatest love. That he is the smell of freshly baked bread. He is life. Listen, guys, don't lose sight of this call, this hard text. Don't lose sight of this. Jesus is not some killjoy king that stands over you like a dictator yelling at you to get it right. That's not what he's like. We've seen that as we've walked through Luke. He does, it's true, he does call you to come and die, but he does so as an affectionate spouse that longs to lead you home to a life with him. Count the cost. 
but do so knowing that Jesus is worth it all. He says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Guys, you're not going to find life anywhere else. And so while it's hard, while it may cost you meaningful relationships with those close to you, he is worth it. And so die to him or die to self, live to him by living for the good of others. Or if I might say it like this, beloved, make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ in Washington, D.C. and beyond. Let's do this together. We need each other if we're going to be willing to do this. And so may we do it together as best we can in this pandemic. But make a commitment to say, I'm not going to be a half-hearted Christian. I'm not going to build half-hearted or half-built towers. I'm not going to get into fights and then lose. I'm going to make the decision today to put it all on the table and follow him because he's worth it. And we're going to do this together that Christ might be glorified in Washington, D.C. and beyond. He's supreme. He's good. He's truth and he's life. Give yourself to him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent Jesus. We thank you that we have his word. And Lord, while his words are tough, while they're sharp, we're thankful for them because he has us to consider these things out in front of his coming. So many of us grew up in a culture, God, of easy believism. May we see, may we count the cost of following Jesus. May we be willing to love him, to be married to him, to give him everything, knowing that he's life, that he's truth, he's all. May we be willing to lay it aside uh, the rest of maybe our desires for the sake of pursuing Christ in others. And may you be glorified in our life together as we do this. God, I pray for grace that are those that are weighing this out, even in this moment. Speak to them. Orient them to the truth. Remind us, Jesus, that you're worth it all. We pray this in your name.